there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. All right, Dr. Rasha Batar, uh, fresh back from wherever you are. It's like, where's Waldo? He was in Singapore. And, by the way, Dr. Batar, how are you feeling after Singapore? Was the event everything you hoped it would be? It was uh, pretty good. It was actually really nice to see so many different areas of the world that are coming um, into their own. You know, we think of the U.S. as being the, it's like everything else revolves around the U.S., but to see so many other companies from so many different parts of the world that are also dealing with sustainable thought processes, agricultural, nutritional, organic food, you know, vitamin supplementation, or all these different things. And it was just really nice to see that we are, that there's so many other people that are more advanced in their own realms than what we are in the U.S. You know, we seem to think that we're advanced in everything. So from that perspective, it was very refreshing. And, you know, it was kind of nice to be recognized by a couple of people over there. I went and started talking to a couple of the vendors, and um, a couple of them already knew of our work and, and what we've been doing in the States. So it was it was nice from that perspective, too. And then I um, was able to spend some nice time with my son, who I kind of let loose in the exhibit hall, and he went and found some very, very important contacts that uh, I ended up spending a couple of hours with talking about potential of collaboration and doing some research and stuff. So it was it was really a good conference overall. Excellent, excellent. As I'm trying to prep up the uh, the YouTube channel, oh, it looks like we've got the YouTube reset. Uh, super, uh, actually, uh, Super Don, yeah, just confirm I've got the wrong camera running. But uh, Dr. Batar, are you also running on uh, Instagram out to the world and the Facebook Live? No, just uh, Facebook today. Um, there's a couple of issues going on right now that I can't do Instagram because of my phone. But but other than that, yeah, we are on Facebook, not on it. Yeah, I'm trying to get the right camera engaged in here. It's got the built-in one, which really is not so good. So uh, in the meantime, hey, we got a question of the day that I want to open up with. And Super Don, if you can help us out here because I'm, you know, I'm troubleshooting some things while we're live in Vegas. And give us the question of the day So, because uh, I think it was directed specifically to me and Dr. Batar. Yeah, this has to do with dental work, and this is from Kay. And Kay says, I've heard that dental work such as crowns, root canals, removal of teeth are causing breast cancer and heart attacks. And she uh, goes and talks about a book that she read called The Hidden Epidemic. And it goes into talking about how silent oral infections are causing heart attacks and breast cancer. She's looking into it, but she's saying that it's extremely costly to have dental work changed, and there are not a lot of places that you can even go to to get help. She wanted to know any recommendations or advice you might have on that. Okay. All right. So have you seen a lot of people in your practice over the years, Dr. Batar, with dental health issues manifesting as all kinds of uh, illnesses and ailments, including cancer? Well, I didn't recognize this until I was at a functional medicine conference about maybe 12, 13 years ago, and the comment was made by one of the presenters who happened to be a dentist that 
95% of all pathology starts in the mouth. So when you start thinking 95% of all pathology starts in the mouth, you start thinking, my God, that, that's impossible. There's no way. I mean, cancer or heart disease, that doesn't start in the mouth. But in actuality, that is a very accurate statistic, that 95% of all disease processes that we deal with are actually originating in the oral cavity. And so it becomes very important to make sure that we are taking good care of our mouths, of our teeth. And I think that um, if more people recognize that little fact, probably people would have more incentive and more, um, probably more motivation to actually be preemptive as far as oral health is concerned. I did not know this, Robert, up until, you, like I said, about a decade ago, and it was a shocking fact to me at that time, but it is true. Well, you've gone to the IAOMT conferences over the years, have you not? Um, I've been to a few. I've, I've lectured there twice. So I've been there a total of, I think, three times, once in like in the mid-1990s, and then the other two times when I, when I gave a presentation there. Right. There, there's a you know, book, it's all in your head, uh, Dr. Hal Huggins. Was, was instrumental in putting a lot of information out there about the mercury amalgams, uh, as well as, uh, let's see if I can get these local levels better, but as far as the danger, that it, 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 how it impacts every aspect yeah. of health universally. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that's one of the books, and it's, but it's not just the mercury aspect, but yes, that's a huge aspect right there. When you start to take into consideration that each dental filling, of course, it depends upon the size of each dental filling, but... The average amalgam filling is outgassing between 5 to 9 nanograms per deciliter per tooth per day. And you start to recognize how much of an onslaught we are being exposed to as far as mercury vapor is concerned. And mercury vapor is the most toxic way of actually uh, becoming exposed to mercury. We would think injection would be, but it's actually mercury vapor, inhalation of mercury vapor. It's a combustion of fossil fuels and outgassing from the uh, amalgams are actually the worst way of getting mercury exposure. All right. So as far as uh, the, the book that, that he rec- she recommended, Hidden Epidemic by Dr. Thomas Le- Levy, uh, I haven't seen that. But, yeah, there's no question that, uh, you know, health star- starts in the oral cavity. I mean, it's the opening of the alimentary canal. And we do such damage and destruction to the epithelial lining of that canal from the mouth all the way through from the tracheoesophagus, all the connections there, uh, down into the stomach, into the small intestine, large intestine, and colon. Uh, if it isn't, uh, you know, inadvertent environmental uh, choices that we're making by putting the wrong kind of food, for instance, glyphosate-contaminated Roundup-ready foods, uh, then it is the antibiotics that are a form of chemo that are devastating, yes, to microbes, but also to epithelial cells, the lining itself, and a whole I guess cottage industry has emerged, not so much in gastroenterology, although they make a lot of money on resectioning the colon for people who have been driven that way with antibiotics and prednisone. But in the natural products realm, a lot of emphasis now, a lot of focus going on not only probiotics, but how do we repair the gut itself? Yeah, absolutely, Robert. Not to change the subject in midstream here, but apparently there was a recent story a couple of weeks ago. I did not hear about it myself, and I don't think we've talked about it. You may have talked about it in one of the other segments, about the man uh, who filed a lawsuit related to glyphosate exposure and won a few hundred million dollar lawsuit. Yes. Yes, it's, it's, yes, we have. It's opening the floodgates, in fact, 
uh, for more suits. And Bayer is probably, won't admit it publicly, regretting their decision to purchase it. <laughs> to wow. purchase Monsanto. Yes, to purchase Monsanto, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and that's good. It couldn't have happened to a uh, nicer... Uh, um, well, I would say the de- I call them the demon spawn of IG Farb in Nazi Germany. Bayer, they were one of the what? breakups. Bayer, Hest, uh, you know the uh, BASF. A little piece of history. Yeah, there's some history <laughs> there. And Bayer, of course. Oh, we're benign. We're baby aspirin. In fact, we yeah. do have an aspirin story, Doctor Batar. I don't know. Again, more and more coming out about. There's a story here about aspirin and the elderly. They're finally acknowledging that the detriment to daily aspirin use is far outweighing the benefit they thought they had for everybody, where they would say, everybody, get on some aspirin every day. Mm. Well, just to finish that thought in the glyphosate story, I hadn't heard about it, but to me, the commentary that was being made at the time of the person that filed the lawsuit is probably going to die before he ever sees any money, but it's actually not about that aspect. It's more because of the floodgates, as you said, have opened up, because I would have thought that would have been a very bad precedent for my to allow it to happen. But once that precedent has been set, I, I assume that it would probably open up many multiple lawsuits against them for this uh, for the exposure caused by the glyphosate. Well, exactly. I, I think it is. There's no question about it. And it's, a, it's about time because it is not benign, the stuff that they're putting into our food. It never has been. But the awareness has now just taken a major leap forward. You know, it's like one small step for, uh, you know, big food. And, uh, you know, it's a devastating step for the uh, uh, the biotech agribusiness industry, they're not giving up, obviously, but the reality is more people now are becoming aware and more suits are going to be laid on the doorstep of Bayer at this point. And they're having to deal with not only the PR problem that they're losing, but the money that they're going to have to pay out because there are thousands of lawsuits, many class action as well, that are, are being filed right now. Some are already engaged. And uh, again, it's going to be disastrous for them, hopefully, ultimately, because we'll all be healthier because of it. Right. Well, it's it's important that uh, somebody took that initiative, and I'm glad that somebody has. But uh, the key is, of course, for us, it's not the lawsuits that are important. It's to make sure that we prevent uh, as much as possible, as far as exposure is concerned, and be cognizant of the fact that don't use it in your gardens. Don't use it in your orchards. Don't use it uh, as much as possible. Make sure that you don't, you know, buy foods that are that have been exposed to it. I, I'm amazed that no matter where you go in the world, glyphosate is being used. It's amazing that in the greenest uh, places of the planet, where the image is green and natural and clean mm-hmm. and toxicity free, even there they're using glyphosate. Yeah. So it's very prevalent, and we just have no idea how uh, common it is as far as being used in, in the agricultural industry. So we just, it behooves us to be aware and to abstain from it as, as humanly as possible. Yeah, Dr. Batar, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who's from MIT, has posited that the glyphosate molecule is drawn into where the, the glycine, the amino acid glycine, would be drawn into. So it's impacting on the manifestation of physicality. In other words, the physical cells are being uh, blocked from being you know, having that integrity necessary to, for instance, epithelial integrity, uh, that glyphosate not only from a toxicological attack but from a, a nutritional intake attack because it blocks the utilization of another essential amino acid. That's uh, important information to know. Um, and I think, is that the same person that had said that the, it was a, there was a statistic that came out that by the year 2025, 
You said this doctor was from MIT, correct? Yeah, it's the same one. Stephanie Seneff, she predicts that, was it going to be one in two boys with with autism by 2025? That's right. That's what I thought. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's a brilliant researcher, uh, and you can't attack her on credentials. That's why they're scared of her. But she's also pointed out that they've identified glyphosate contamination in vaccination as well. Yeah, so it's injected as well as ingested. All right, we've got lots more healing to go on the Robert Scott Bell Show Advanced Medicine with Dr. Rashid Bittar, drbittar.com, as well as advancedmedicine.com and robertscottbell.com for the archives. Uh, we've got a lot more to go. Alaska, the aspirin angle. Why are they still pushing it? What are we acknowledging today? The revolution will be broadcast. The Robert Scott Bell Show. of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Right, each and every week, we get to go live with Dr. Rasha Bittar to advanced medicine like nowhere else on planet Earth in the mainstream media or even the alternative or new media. It's very unique what we've done over the years together, and there are archives available for your edification. And in, in fact, if you plug into the advancedmedicine.com website, there's a special invitation code that can bring you in to a private association that allows you to learn things we can't even say on the air in quote-unquote public. Uh, and the invitation code for Robert Scott Bell Show watchers and listeners is 1358-1358. Now, Dr. Batar, the aspirin story. I want to go back, if you can remember, what was it about that the, the doctor said, oh, man, aspirin is great. We should all be on it all of the time. I know it's, it can cause problems, but a little bit, baby aspirin, that they po- you know, proffered this idea that now they're recanting and pulling back on. What were they intending to do? What happened? And then what can we do instead? Are you talking about with aspirin specifically? Yeah, yeah, not not the use for headaches, but the idea that you could take a baby aspirin as if it were a dietary supplement every day to prevent. I think they were saying heart attacks and strokes. With uh, with uh, atherosclerosis and prevention of uh, arterial occlusion, yeah, that that was the thought process behind it, and uh, that it basically causes a anticoagulant effect which then theoretically allows for the blood to be more, uh, more less viscous, you know, more liquid, if you will, and allow mm-hmm. it to um, go through more lumens that were, that were smaller or that were partially occluded. And, of course, since then, they've got other types of drugs that they've come in with that um, allow for increased uh, flexibility of the red blood cells, some of the newer anticoagulants, and, um, of course, it was the, it's supposed to be, aspirin is supposed to be a, a lesser evil of Coumadin, which is an, an extrinsic pathway anticoagulant, which, of course, you know, Coumadin or Warfarin is, uh, is a rat poison. Yes, no. but it, it, we dose it down that. so hopefully you don't bleed out, which sometimes that right. doesn't work that well. You know, but the idea of aspirin that's being what? that benign substance, of course, that's, They've changed finally over over many years, right? And when I say it's rat poison, when we're talking about that, we're not talking about figuratively speaking. It literally is the, the it is the actual 
It's the ingredient, that, active ingredient. Right. Yeah, if yeah. you want to kill rats, exactly. this is what you do. So uh, aspirin, thought to be benign and safe. Take a baby aspirin, Joseph's baby aspirin. Remember, I remember they tasted like an orange creamsicle in the day back when I was a kid. But, again, more and more information coming out about the deleterious impacts of aspirin. And, again, this latest study, and it's linked up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com. Read about it for grandmas and grandpa's sake. They're saying that whatever benefit they thought was derived from aspirin is outweighed by the detriment. Yeah. Um, so I, I have not seen this particular component that you're talking about. But, yeah, we, we've known this for some time now. Um, you've talked about it actually longer than I've talked about it, Robert, but I did see this uh, daily aspirin may be harmful, healthy, older adults, this larger study that, uh, that Super Don posted. I have not read it yet, but it's not surprising based upon the commentary that has been, at least on our show um, for the last few years, based upon other articles that have come out. So this large study obviously confirms those findings, but uh, it's not a surprise anymore. The, the gastrointestinal impact, the bleeding, uh, the, also the dampening of the eicosanoid system, the, the autocrine system. I mean, again, I'm not saying that doctors intended to do this, but I wish they weren't as quick to just say, yes, a synthetic drug looks like a miracle cure, instead of recognizing that, wait a second, these synthetic uh, chemicals compounded like never before in nature are all going to have toxic, unintended consequences. And, uh, and unlike what we've talked about and you've talked about with allopathic medicine, when you're dealing with a life-and-death matter and a drug can save your life, yes, of course, as you've said too, get them on it quickly, get them off of it quickly, and then move them into you know nutritional supplementation, detoxification, everything else that you wrote about also in the nine steps to keep the doctor away. Yeah, I think that the, the inhibition of the prostaglandins and you know, the, the entire cascade of what happens and then the concomitant um, instability that's created within the gut mucosa and then the ulcerations that are potential effects of not just with aspirin, but uh, generally speaking with a lot of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories and the importance of taking them with food. Some of these things uh, have, have been minimized because of the desired effect of the cardioprotective uh, effect. Right. But we, ha- we have other ways to do that, including a essential fatty acids that protect right. the cardiovascular system, other ways to reduce inflammation without harming the liver. We've talked about it many times over the years. We'll do some more of that. But what about raising kids? We talked about generational differences last hour. What if we- you do it with spirituality? What will happen? In all my years of radio, I've never seen anything like this. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Last hour, I know, Dr. Batar, you weren't able to be here for two hours, but... We talked about, uh, with my friend Brad Zollis, who wrote a book called Liquid Leadership, all about the differences in the generations from Baby Boon to Gen X, Gen Y, Millennials and Post-Millennials, how they interact in the workplace, what their expectations are, why you know people say, oh, those darn Millennials, right? But we talk about raising kids differently, and he mentioned that. There was a certain point, like he said, around 1984, where parents stopped parenting, and they began to try to be buddy-buddy with their kids. And it's fine to have fun with your kids. I have fun with my kids. But there's a certain point where you still got to be the parent. And they grew up with unreasonable expectations about life, that things would be just given to them. And they got frustrated. It's like, wait, that doesn't work for me. 
And I think about this subject now, and we have a link up that Superdon found, which is really cool, a study about raising kids with spirituality or religion, how it enhances their mental health. Are you, are you at all surprised by this? No, not at all. It's uh, intuitively obvious to me. But, do, but what is it about, you know, the kids that are raised without it, their mental health is somehow, is it is about just like you've said in your book, Nine Chests to to keep the doctor away, the spiritual toxicity or the spiritual deficiency in that case? How do you put everything together? I mean, it's one thing you can have an emotional uh, reaction or response to life and mental thoughts about life, but, you know, lacking that spiritual component, it's there's something major missing. Yeah, I think that there is a distinction here. So spiritual toxicity would be, um, when I first introduced that concept in the, in the seven toxicity uh, philosophy, um, I could tell that there was some confusion, and I wasn't really 100% clear when I had made that comment. I just knew that the spirituality component was an important aspect to, from a toxicity standpoint to address. So I think that the spiritual toxicity can be simplified into thinking when a person feels the necessity to impose their will or their belief system onto another person, that's where I believe that the spiritual toxicity, start creating that spiritual toxicity. It's not to be confused with passion or belief system, but it's mm-hmm. when you feel that you have to impose your belief system on someone else, that's when you're creating that spiritual toxicity. Whereas what we're talking about here, I think that would be categorized more, as you said, uh, a spiritual deficiency. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a clear distinction between that. The spiritual deficiency would be a lack of understanding. Uh, and again, it's not a child's fault. I think children inherently are already spiritual. I think we, as adults, reduce that spiritual component because a child looks at a tree or looks at the sky or looks at a bird and they're, they're mesmerized. They're amazed by flight or they're amazed by how the tree waves at them. But we take things like that for granted or we get dumbed down to it. So I, what does that have to do with spirituality? I think that spirituality aspect is to recognize the, how amazing life is and how everything is intertwined and how everything is all connected. And I think children inherently know that, and as they get older and get more um, jaded based upon their parents and their school systems and everything else they hear about the news, et cetera, in society, mm-hmm. and, and the constant marketing message they get, they start to lose that connection. And I think that would be more analogous to the spiritual deficiency aspect that you, I think, very mm-hmm. appropriately termed just now. Yeah, I think, you know, as a, and we're, you're a parent, I'm a parent, I, I think my responsibility to my kids is to, is to raise them with a, some kind of connection to something that's either beyond this, what's known as the scene or the, you know, the herd of the felt, to take it to that deeper level, to give them some kind of balance when life goes a little off and you say, well, is it just a physical issue or, or is there some other, uh, you know, energetic component to this? Now, how they go out into the world once they're of the age of majority and they leave us, you know, as adults, uh, I think having at least that grounding, then I think they're better prepared for a world that you know won't always give them everything like so many millennials apparently because of the way they were raised perceive the world and we're very disappointed and even angry about now and looking, for instance, for socialism, for instance, to fill the gap and not realizing that it costs so much it would bankrupt them. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of that comes down to being disenchanted. Um, I think nature, when you start looking at nature, nature has never tolerated something for nothing for very long. And, uh, but that, we are not bordering into a political 
topic and leaving the spiritual topic, I think. But yeah. I think you get, well, you I can't. We, I can't. I think we can't divorce it. I, I always talk about the people that want to impose, just like you said, the spiritual toxicity. You want to impose your will, if you will, your spiritual will, and that's kind of an oxymoron because will is mind, I think, more or less than spirit is. There's this water component. There's this grace component to it. Uh, and then if we talk in terms of trying to dominate somebody by having your belief system overwhelm theirs, that is a vi- fundamental violation of spiritual freedom. And, of course, I talked today is Constitution Day, and I talked about our founding fathers, our forefathers, those who came to America. One of their primary goals was to establish a place, a home, where they could worship as they saw fit without a government mandating or prohibiting them from worshiping how they saw fit. Yeah, and, and so you're right. It is, it's hard to divorce the spiritual component from the political component and when you put it in context like that. But I completely agree with you, Robert, that there is, uh, there's a fundamental disconnect um, that, as parents, behooves us to help encourage our children to make that connection. And it starts with just simple things, you know, um, connecting with their environment, connecting with nature, um, setting the right intention before a meal by, by blessing the meal. Uh, mm-hmm. Just simple things like that. And as children get older, um, encouraging them to partake in some of those types of uh, activities, uh, you know, just, just the simple act of praying before a meal, of uh, blessing the meal. It doesn't even have to be a religious connotation. It's just, it's just the intention of blessing that meal um, goes a long way. I've, I've seen that actually with my own children and um, in a transition that we made some, you know, some time ago. But it, just simple things like that, I think, go a long way to help a child um, improve their spiritual basis and, and connect with the their external environment and, and make them more aware. And it does help them with their mental um, well-being and, uh, and socially developing, etc. Yeah, we've talked about it in terms of advanced medicine or medicine in general, how the biggest problem we see with doctors is, you know, not that they're not skilled or intelligent or able to do, do good things, but if they look at everything as a molecular, molecular reductionist or a collectivist mindset and they, you know, they don't honor the individual, much less the spirit that imbues life itself into the body, uh, that those are the most, to me, dangerous doctors. Because if they don't see that majesty of creation itself and you look at people as just you know, robots, if you will, mechanics with mechanical uh, systems with maybe blood is considered oil. The, you know, these analogies don't go the same way. Like you pointed out, I think last week, right? You put sugar in a gas tank in a car, it's dead. You put the, you know, too much sugar in a human body, it doesn't die immediately. It tries to adapt. It, it modifies itself right. in so many ways into chronicity. So you have, a, 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 you know, an amazing amount of leeway before you're gone. So you can try and figure this thing out. I think that's an amazing gift. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, Robert. The one thing that, um, when reading the title of this particular article, raising kids with religion or spirituality may present their mental uh, may protect their mental health. That though, you know, the religion versus spirituality to me, there's a very massive difference between the two, because most religion, even though it preaches all inclusion or inclusiveness, actually increases. Uh, divisiveness. I mean, they, they, they divide different people based upon their fundamental beliefs, yes. whereas spirituality doesn't do that. And I think that 
it's important if we're going to be talking about the subject to make a distinction between religion and spirituality. Super Don uh, always appreciates I, when you do that. Well, and I think it's important, though, for other people to also understand, um, you know, you, you and I and, and um, Ty are perfect examples of three different major differences in religion, and yet we are completely aligned because spiritually we're aligned. And I think that when we allow the dogma between various religions to interfere with mm-hmm. our spirituality, which is exactly, a lot of times religion actually creates that divisiveness. I know people are going to disagree with me, but <laughs> my second major in college, my second major in college was theology, as you know, Robert. Yeah. One of the things is that Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens, you know, said it best. He said that religion is a man-made institution. So if you follow the three monotheistic religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, you recognize that man was created inherently imperfect. And if man was created imperfect, then by definition, anything that an imperfect man would create, i.e. religion, if we use Samuel Clemens' premise as a basis of our hypothesis, then mm-hmm. the imperfection of man would be uh, would certainly come into anything that man creates, which would be religion. So by definition, religion is imperfect. And right. I think that, that, you know, using that premise, I, I have chosen not to... Um, follow any religion, even though I was born Muslim, and I know all the prayers in Arabic, and I do many of the things and the rituals, but that's devoid of necessarily um, take, I'm not taking the part about, from my religion, that creates more uh, divisiveness. I, 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 again, this is, this is why we're drawn together, as I've said for so many years that, uh, you know, you might claim to be a member of a church, a synagogue, or mosque. I'm not going to necessarily judge you on that. I'm going to observe you. I'm going to watch. Do you live a life of love and of, of example, of service? And I'm drawn to people who love God, however you perceive God to be, because they live a life of service. They they are kind. They tend to want to help uplift. It doesn't mean they're pushovers either, because I don't think God asks us to just be trampled on. That's not the point. But you're, to your point, getting beyond a 501c3 church, religion, or mosque that is officially sanctioned by government, it, that's an irony in a, of itself based on the First Amendment, uh, that I, I observe and I feel the energy of, of each individual, whether they you know, are a member of whatever given church or sect, it's secondary to how I perceive they work or live in this world. Yeah, I think that it was said best by, I believe it was Buddha. I sometimes get Buddha and Confucius confused as to who said what, but I believe Buddha said, we should take every opportunity we can to preach. We should take every opportunity we can to preach and never open our mouth. And so I think if we all, you know, recognize that how we live our lives mm-hmm. is more instrumental in helping people to to, to guide people, and if we want to be you know, uh, from a missionary standpoint, I mean, a lot of times when missionaries go out there, they're trying to really help the people of whatever local area they're in. It's not a mission of preaching their religion. But, of course, that's one of the aspects of missionaries in, in all religions. But if we lead by example, I think that is really... Yes. Well, yeah, you become more that... Conducive. The, the highest ideal of whatever theology or dogma you carry. And by living exactly. that, you speak more than any words you can communicate out to the world, your actions. So beautifully said, Dr. Batar. We are here you in Las Vegas. All right. Be- for me better. <laughs> Dr. Batar, you're beautiful. 
So uh, we're going to take a break here, and we'll be back to wrap it up. A few more stories we'll see if we can squeeze in, including this absurd notion that kids who are injured by vaccines should get more vaccines. That's over at Baxter. Our buddy Sherry Tenpenny put that out. Uh, check it out. Links are up in the show notes. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. I want to thank uh, Naturally Organic Healing Center for hosting us today on the Robert Scott Bell Show in Las Vegas. I want to thank my friend uh, Stefan Chouanier. He's amazing. Go see him at Cirque du Soleil whenever he appears or any other events you get to find out about it. Your website again? Acrofusion.com. Acrofusion.com with a Z spell. And it's in the show notes. Also, Brad Zellos, Liquid Leadership. And, of course, Dr. Batar when we do advanced medicine together each and every day. It's always a wonderful adventure, the places we go. I think of Dr. Seuss. Oh, the places you'll go. Oh, where did, Ra- where, where did Dr. Batar go? <laughs> um, I'm right here, Robert. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was your cue. Never mind. Now, let, let's go to the Vaxter story that Dr. Sherry Tenpenny's uh, group put out. Kids injured yep. by vaccines should get more vaccines. I mean, I, I don't know if it gets more uh, dangerously absurd than that. Yeah, this is, uh, I, that's what I was actually reading. So I'm sorry I missed what you, what you said because I was just kind of going through this and reading everything about it. But it's, um, I think this is actually more propaganda. So... You know, this brings up very interesting a very interesting um, component that I think we should discuss, and that is that when I made the realization that children that have been vaccine injured, you know, with the mercury, you know, my feeling is this is actually nothing more than a mercury toxicity issue. It's just not the vaccines, but it's also the uh, exposure that they've had to the maternal amalgam load when they're in utero. And then on top of that, of course, the vaccines and then other exposures and there's certain genetic predispositions that allow these children um, to be more susceptible because their bodies can't naturally clear the mercury. So really, autism is nothing more than mercury toxicity on board a physiology that has a genetic predisposition for the inability to excrete. Now, when we start looking at this and, and when I made that realization, it was based upon a study that Boyd Haley had referred me to, which he had done that was published in the International Journal of Toxicology back, I believe, in the, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And basically the study was talking about air levels of mercury. And what they found was the children that were mercury toxic, I'm sorry, children that were autistic, mm-hmm. had very low levels of mercury in their hair versus children that were neurotypic and normally developing had high levels of mercury. And what they found was that actually the more severe the autism, the lower the level of mercury. So Which is counter, talk- counterintuitive at first when you think of it. It's like, wait a second, something's wrong with this picture. Exactly, exactly. And so when I presented this uh, at a conference, I was talking about this. I, I was actually presenting something else about metal toxicity, but I happened to mention this particular study. And in the audience, there was about a 1,000 doctors in the audience, and what was interesting was this particular doctor literally stood up. I mean, didn't just make the comment, raised his hand, uh, and then stood up. And he said, well, clearly, based upon what you just said, this study shows that, you know, mercury has nothing to do with this, and, and your entire premise is wrong. And 
it took me a moment to sit there and stare at him, and then I looked around at the rest of the audience, and I said, am I the only one that is, you know, am I the only one here, or <laughs> does everybody else get what I'm trying to say? And then I, to, I said, is your point then that if mercury is low in autistic children, and the lower it is, the more severe the autism, are you saying that they're suffering from a deficiency of mercury, and we should give them mercury? And he kind of stumbled, and then everybody else started to laugh. You know, yeah. the audience started laughing, and I said, the point here is that the autistic children can't get rid of the mercury. That's why it's so low because in the hair, because hair not is dead excrement, it's a dead tissue. So yeah. this kind of follows the same type of thing here. They're saying, oh, well, you know, once you've had that, it's maybe not the same type of logic, but it's certainly not. This is, this is more suspect, the agenda. You know, okay, they had a reaction. Right. Oh, don't worry about it. It's not going it, to cause any more reaction. That's absurd. So let's distinguish this between, like, if you give somebody, say, something like DMPS, and they have a reaction to it, and then people say, oh, it's a sulfur allergy, right? And there's no such thing as a sulfur allergy, right? Robert, we know that because mm-hmm. sulfur is the most integral portion of uh, protein uh, integrity. Morphologically, right. the proteins won't destruct because of sulfur. So nobody really has a sulfur allergy. They have allergies to other proteins or other types of chemicals and components that are within those sulfur, like trimethoprim sulfomethoxazole, bactrim. Sure. When somebody says you have a septor allergy, it's not the septor, it's not the trimethoprim, it's not the sulfomethoxazole, it's the trimethoprim that you're allergic to. So here, it's a similar type of thought process that they're trying to create, but it's in actuality, the reason that the children have a reaction is because of all the garbage that's in there, and their yeah. immune system's responding. So well, this is... they shouldn't be doing more. Dr. Patai, this is where these doctors are so programmed that they can't think straight. And if they do, of course, they might lose their licenses. But uh, that's why we do advanced medicine each and every week with you, my friend. I appreciate it. So with that, folks, links are up in the show notes. Archives are available immediately following on GCN. Tell them what we need to know because it's time to go. That's the power to heal. It's unequivocally yours. Scott Bell Show.